from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Ashley Coaches. And I'm Hannah Cunningham. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. For this week's show, we dug into our archives to bring you back a great interview with Angry Planet's own George Karunas. But first, here's some environmental news headlines. A second round of remediation is needed at Nunavut's Resolution Island, located at the island's former military base. These contaminants could take a full year to clean up. This has presented itself 12 years after the first remediation took place, which was a $65 million task. The federal government will return this summer to begin this second round of remediation. Following Alberta, Premier Notley's announcement on Tuesday to boycott the importation of BC wines as a threat to its new oil transportation restriction, the federal government has announced that it will mediate but not negotiate with the provinces. Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr says the approval of the Kinder Morgan pipeline is something the federal government will not back down from. Due to climate change, Montreal has permanently closed its iconic Beaver Lake skating rink on Mount Royal. The natural rink was built in the 1930s by Canada's first landscape architect. Last year, it was open for only 37 days in the winter, compared to 100 days in the years preceding it. This event mirrors the recent news that Cape Town, South Africa, will be out of water as of April. Back in November, Terra Informer Dylan Hall had the opportunity to sit down with George Karunas, a world-renowned storm chaser, adventurer, and host of the international TV show Angry Planet. Listen on to discover the amazing places that his career has taken him. From the Fort McMurray wildfire just days after the city was reopened, to documenting climate change around the world. I'm speaking today with George Karunas, a storm chaser, explorer, and storyteller who has hosted four seasons of the international TV show Angry Planet. 
documenting the intensity of nature on all seven continents, George has chased hurricanes, entered volcanoes, and explored some of the most remote and ecologically sensitive places on Earth. Most recently, his explorations have brought him to the front lines of climate change. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, first off, I'm really curious. You document deadly, dangerous natural phenomena for a living. How did you get into doing what you do, and why did you ever think it was a good idea? Uh, I never said it was a good idea, <laughs> but, it, but it is indeed what I do. Um, when I was a kid, I was always really interested in science and nature. Uh, I could recite the name of every single dinosaur, and I would be plastered up against the television screen whenever a Jacques Cousteau TV special would come on. And so that, was, that seed was planted in my brain a long, long time ago. But then as I became older and went to school and studied engineering and got a real job, that got lost. But it eventually came back, and I took that pre-existing passion for science and nature and combined it with a newfound love of travel, photography, storytelling, exploration, and decided that weather was the route that I was going to go down. And so I started chasing local storms here in Toronto and then eventually did my very first ever storm chase in Oklahoma in 1998 and saw my first tornado. And ever since then, I've been totally hooked and been pursuing every type of extreme natural phenomenon ever since. Crazy and cool. And you are the host of a TV show, Angry Planet. How did you become the host? Was the show your idea? Well, it sort of came about because I developed a reputation for being the guy that was always at the right place at the right time. Or <laughs> maybe the wrong place at the wrong time if you <laughs> live in these places, right? It all depends on your perspective. But whenever the weather would get bad, my phone would start to ring. And it would be news agencies, CBC, CNN, it would be documentary filmmakers and television production companies looking for my footage and my photos because I was always there. And I got a phone call one day. It was a Friday afternoon, late in the day, and it was from a television producer that had read about me in the newspaper shortly after Hurricane Katrina. So this is late 2005. And he said, I read about you. What you do sounds really cool. Let's try to make a TV show out of it. So I'm like, yes, let's try. So we did. Uh, we, we put together a pitch for the Outdoor Life Network, and they loved the idea. And originally, we tried to get six episodes. They came back and said, do 13 for the first season. And so I had to quit my job that I loved and take up uh, a dream profession of literally traveling the world and doing what I've been dreaming of doing since I was a kid. So your hobby became your job because you were so invested in it. Absolutely, yes. It was the persistence. And I was so invested in it. I like the way you phrased that because in the job I was working at the time, it was in the largest recording studio complex in the country. And uh, I was the technical manager. I had a tremendous amount of responsibility. But at the same time, I would negotiate extra time off. I would take a month off unpaid every year just so I could go chase tornadoes in the spring. And then I would take my overtime. And I would bank that overtime and take it at time and a half just so I could go and document these phenomena. 
started with tornadoes, but eventually branched out into hurricanes, forest fires, volcanoes. And at one point, I was, I did a month of tornado chasing. I chased four hurricanes and went to a volcano in Ethiopia all in one year while I was still holding down a full-time job. So I just, just didn't know when to stop. And you've been, as you say, to a lot of different places, and we don't have time to go over all of them. I'm wondering... <laughs> What is, like, the most seriously scary situation you've been in? A scary situation? There's been so many. Where do I begin? Well, let me give you a few, a quick, couple of quick examples. Sometimes you're frightened for a few seconds. I've had lightning strike so close that I've felt the heat on my face. Sometimes you have fear for a few minutes, like when a tornado is bearing down on you. I was in Oklahoma a couple of years ago, and... There was a tornado that was world record size, uh, 4.3 kilometers wide. And there's never been one bigger that we know of. And that was frightening for a few minutes. And then Hurricane Katrina, for example, it was frightening for hours mm. because the city I was in, Gulfport, Mississippi, was literally coming apart all around me. It was like being in a blender for eight hours. So fear comes in different calibers and different durations. But those were some of the more more memorable ones. Hmm. And that's leading to what I was thinking next. Like, is there anything, maybe not in terms of fear, maybe in terms of fear, that has been the most affecting? Have there been places that have really stuck with you in your dreams or your memory? <laughs> well, th there was one time in Kenya, and we were filming for an episode of Angry Planet at this place called Kidum Cave. And this cave is known as a place where elephants, herds of elephants, go underground to the cave, and they go to the very back in the pitch black, and they scrape the cave walls and chew the rocks to get salt in their diet. So we wanted to go and try and document this natural phenomenon. But this cave is also the epicenter for two outbreaks of Marburg hemorrhagic fever, which is basically the first cousin of the Ebola virus. So when I was there, I had... Tyvex coveralls and eye protection and surgical gloves and a respirator to protect us. We don't know exactly how the virus gets to humans, but we know it's related to the bat. And at one point during that expedition, I got bitten by one of these bats. It bit through my surgical glove. Oh, no. And at that moment, it realized, it dawned on me, that I might have only five days to live and all of my internal organs could possibly liquefy and bleed them out of every orifice in my body. So that was one of those times where the fear didn't go away for several days. And uh, that was certainly one of the worst encounters I've ever had. Obviously, I didn't catch the virus. I was okay. But at the time, I didn't know if I was the walking dead, almost quite literally. Well, I'm very glad you did survive. Thank um... you. I appreciate the concern. <laughs> I can laugh about it now, but at the time I was, I was feeling nauseous, sick to my stomach at the, at the proposition. So, being where I am in Alberta, I would like to speak a bit about the recent Fort McMurray wildfire. Um, yes, which you I, documented. Was, I was there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, just a bit of information for those who don't know. In early May 2016, an immense wildfire consumed much of Fort McMurray, resulting in the mandatory evacuation of the entire city. More than 100,000 residents needed to leave, making it the largest recorded wildfire evacuation in Canadian history and the third largest recorded environmental disaster evacuation ever. 
So, George, could you please speak about your experience documenting the aftermath of the Fort McMurray wildfire? I had uh, the same experience as a lot of people. We saw on the news these unbelievable images of people with their camera phones in their cars trying desperately to flee Fort McMurray when they are literally surrounded by fire. There were mothers with kids in their cars and people helping each other on the roadside. And it all happened very, very quickly. And I basically gathered up my things, tried to convince the TV network that we should go film and flew out there as quickly as we could. And was there for several days. And I was one of the very first people to get into the city as soon as the RCMP lifted the roadblock. And I tell you, even then, the ground was so hot to the touch that I melted my boots even days after the fire had gone through. It was unbelievable. That's crazy. That's that's huge. So how long after the fire had gone through were you there? It was only a couple of days. And when I first got in, two things really struck me. Number one, how devastated some parts of the city was. But the other thing was how well the infrastructure survived in Fort McMurray. The main highway was okay. The water treatment plant was okay. The, the airport was okay. So the firefighters obviously worked really hard to try and protect the crucial infrastructure of the town. And as bad as it was, it could have been much worse, not to minimize what did happen there, but the entire city could have been pretty much wiped off the map if it wasn't for the the tremendous efforts of the firefighting crews. So I watched a few videos um, that you were in before this interview to prepare, and I was really interested by, um, if I understand right, you don't document disasters per se. You document natural phenomena that just so happen to cause disasters. Is that true? I like the way you, you describe that, yes. Um, whether a phenomenon becomes a disaster is completely dependent upon us. A disaster is a term that humans came up with. Forest fires are naturally occurring things. Tornadoes, hurricanes, volcanic eruptions, all these things are just planet Earth trying to establish equilibrium from high pressure to low pressure or releasing gas trapped under the Earth or whatever. It's when we put ourselves in the past of these events that they go, they make the transition from natural phenomena to natural disaster. And my being there to document these disasters, if you will, won't change whether or not they happen. Right. But uh, what I do want to do is show people how devastating some of these things can be. And hopefully the next time they're threatened by one, they'll heed the warnings and evacuate and get a better understanding for the world around us as well. I want to spark the curiosity in kids that I had. I want the next generation of storm chasers and explorers to be inspired by me the way I was inspired by Jacques Cousteau and such when I was younger. Well, you definitely inspired me, I, I have to be honest. Let's talk about climate change. Global warming, or global weirding, as some scientists mm -hmm. call it, is mm -hmm. a 
pretty abstract concept for the majority of people. Like, we know it's a thing, but we don't know what it actually means at a tangible local level. But recently, your work has put you on the front lines. So where and how have you seen climate change becoming tangible? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing for a lot of people to wrap their head around. We can understand weather. We get that. We deal with weather every single day. It, 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 the weather determines how we spend our day, right? But mm-hmm. weather, weather spread over a long period of time is climate, and it's hard for us to wrap our heads around these long-term effects, right? You'll frequently hear people saying, oh, it's, we had record cold today. Where's that, where's that global warming that people keep talking about, right? Yeah, you know, that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, so what I want to do is really show people the difference between weather and climate. And a lot of what I've done in, in recent years is visiting places around the world that are being directly affected right now. There are climate refugees in places like Bangladesh, where people's homes or farmland has been eroded into the sea, or places like the island nation of Tuvalu, where rising sea levels are threatening the existence of the entire nation. Their water supply, their clean drinking water, is threatened frequently by these high tides that uh, contaminate their fresh water supply, making the the island potentially unlivable in not the not-too-distant future. And so by showing people here in North America that our actions have repercussions in parts of the world that you may have never even heard of is part of what I'm trying to accomplish, to show people the, the grander scale that is quite often difficult for us to visualize. And these are places that you've been in the last couple of years? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have traveled to 65 countries or so, to all seven continents. We were in Siberia documenting uh, the melting permafrost. Um, I've been climbing on icebergs off the coast of Newfoundland, putting satellite tracking beacons onto icebergs, tracking them as they move down from the Greenland ice sheet. I've been up in northern Manitoba collecting polar bear droppings and getting them analyzed at the zoo in Winnipeg to see how these polar bears are dealing with being on land for an extra month every year because the sea ice is forming later and later each season. So all of these these little things are, are giving us clues as to what's happening with our planet, and I love sharing these things with the world. Did you find anything out about polar bears? Absolutely, yeah. They're, uh, the polar bear population in uh, Hudson Bay, which is the one that we were studying, they're doing okay compared to other polar bear populations around the world, like in Alaska or northern Norway. Um, but when they're on land, they're not eating much at all from the late spring through to early fall. So there's quite a few months that they're eating nothing but like sedge grasses and maybe the occasional goose egg, or if they're lucky, maybe scavenge a carcass of a seal or a whale. But it's very difficult for them, and by the time the ice forms, they're hungry and ready to get back out onto their hunting ground. And how about people around the world? Is there anything that you, I I suppose it's not looking forward to, but are there places that you expect to be documenting in the next couple years? Oh, I never know what's going to happen next. Uh, We'll see, but absolutely, there's, there's so many, especially coastal regions, 
where a lot of people live, million, billions of people live very close to coastal regions or right on the water. And these are the kind of places that tend to feel the effect, the storm surge during hurricanes or rising sea levels and high tides and changing patterns, things like that. Um, anywhere where there's some unusual weather pattern happening is a place where I'm probably going to want to be. I was thinking about climate refugees the other day and how people who are displaced because of rising sea levels, it really challenges this binary between nature and humans. I wonder if you can speak to that at all in relation to what you've been documenting. Yeah, it's interesting how you mentioned that there's this, as you say, a binary between nature and humans, and there really shouldn't be. We are a part of the natural world, right? We are mammals. We're, we live in an environment no different than any other animal on this planet. We've just been able to create these constructs. We get up in our climate-controlled house. We get into our climate-controlled car. We drive to our climate-controlled office, and we repeat that over and over again. And so for us, especially in the West, we really do seem to have a disconnect between ourselves and nature. And I challenge people to think about the last time that they actually touched a tree. A lot of people can't answer that question. And to me, that's frightening. That's, that really tells me that we don't see ourselves as part of the natural world. But then I visit a place like Dhaka, Bangladesh, where millions, half a million people every year have to leave the rural areas and move into the city which has now become one of the most densely populated places on Earth. And a lot of it is because the deltas are becoming uninhabitable as the land erodes into the sea. So people are quite frequently being forced into these urban environments because they're, the natural world that they used to be so connected with has actually evicted them. It's really interesting you talk about our climate-controlled homes, cars, offices, and yet this climate that we live in is out of control. I, I'm wondering, in, in terms of addressing climate change, do you think that it's better to, to fight it, to prevent it, to adapt to it, to mitigate? Well, all of the above has to be done. Um, I'm encouraged by the, the, the efforts of young people today. The generations that are growing up now live in a world that understands the science of climate change. And I'm looking forward to the day when the teenagers of right now end up in positions of power, world leaders, heads of industry, who understand that you can still turn a profit while being environmentally responsible. And I think the tide will change. I just hope it's not too late. So one last question, perhaps, um, and this is a big one. I don't expect any finite answers here, but where do you think <laughs> we are heading as a planet and as a species? What do you think the future will hold? Well, it all depends on how far in the future you want to try to predict. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we, we have our immediate problem right now, which are things such as lots of species and habitats and pollution and threats of nuclear war and things of such. Those are the very urgent issues. 
And then you go out a little further, and now we're talking about some of these climate issues where we're 150 to 100 years in the future and beyond from that. Here's the thing. The planet, people say they want to save the planet. That's wrong. I'm not, I'm not encouraging people to save the planet. The planet will do just fine. After we're gone, it will continue doing its thing. Planet Earth has been around millions of years before we ever showed up, and after we're gone, it will continue doing its merry thing. What we really want to change and what we really want to preserve is us, people, our lifestyles, our, our, our way of life in a sustainable way. So I want people to maybe think a little bit less about saving the planet and more about preserving what we have right now, right? So that, that's a, it's a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one. Once a species goes extinct, it's gone forever. That's something that we can deal with right now. And those are the kind of, of issues that I think need to be dealt with as quickly as, as possible. Is there anything that you really want to accomplish in terms of what you do in your work? Your purpose, obligation? Well, um, years ago, I actually have a mission statement, a personal mission statement from my own life, and I made this up years ago, and I try to live by it as truly as I can. And that is that my purpose is to travel the world and to the most extreme places and document the most extreme forces and then share what I've seen with as many people as possible. And whether that is through speaking engagements, television programs, the internet, radio interviews, what have you. As long as I'm doing that, as long as I'm doing those two things, then that is my, that is my future, and I'll be happy if I'm doing that. If I'm 90 years old in a wheelchair, and I'm, someone is pushing me into the eye of a hurricane, I'll still be happy. <laughs> is there any last thing that you would want to tell people out there? One frequent thing that I get asked a lot is, what's the simple thing that I can do to make a difference in terms of climate change. And the one thing I tell people, it boils down to what's the easiest thing that you can do that has the biggest impact, the bang for the buck, if you will. And it boils down to three words, eat less meat. You don't have to be a vegetarian, but the less meat you eat will dramatically decrease the carbon footprint that you have with minimal effect to your lifestyle and quality of life. And that's an easy thing that we can all do. George, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, take care. Cheers. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Have you ever wanted to be on the radio? Terra Informa is recruiting. If you want to join our team and share our stories, check out the About Us tab at terrainforma.ca. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cgsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors Shelley Jodoin, Sydney Carbonic, 
Amanda Rooney, Caitlin McNabb, Carter Gorzitsa, and Dylan Hall. We've been your hosts, Hannah Cunningham and Ashley Coaches. Catch you next week.